good evening, everyone, and this is Sue Parker-Strafasi from Braille Institute, and I'm, it's my pleasure tonight to introduce Dr. Bill Takeshita. Uh, he is the Consulting Director of Low Vision for Training at Braille Institute and the Chief of Optometric Services at Center for the Parkview Sighted, and we are bringing you this telephone education series to kind of bring topics of, related to young children with visual impairments and um, to be able to kind of share information and be able to give you an opportunity, opportunity to ask Dr. Bill questions. So we're looking forward to this. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about um, sleep issues uh, related to children with visual impairments. And uh, Dr. Bill will be giving us some information on basically the issues related to um, the medical conditions. And then we'll be also talking a bit about how we can help um, establish routines and, and maybe get some other feedback from people and other parents in our question and answer period about how it worked for them and, and maybe some other suggestions for all of us. So with that, I'll just hand it over to you, Dr. Bill. Well, thank you very much, Sue. And it's a real pleasure that there's so many of you calling from all over the United States tonight. And tonight we'll be speaking about different types of sleep disorders that many children with vision impairment suffer from. Now, I first must state that neither Sue nor I, neither of us are sleep specialists, but we do have a lot of experience in working with children and families where one of the issues that does come up is that their children do not sleep well. And for any of us who are parents, I think that we all are very familiar with what happens when there's a baby in the house that is crying. When the baby doesn't sleep well, mom or dad, they don't sleep well, and it really tends to affect the whole household. I know that for myself, when we had our first daughter, she would wake up and she would cry and she wanted to eat maybe every 45 minutes. And I couldn't believe how tiring it was. And it got to the point where when you hear the baby crying, the shrill, the loud sound of the baby's crying, it really became very annoying. And you would try to go back to sleep and sometimes you can't go back to sleep because the shrill of the baby's crying will tend to alert your system. It's almost where you tend to release adrenaline, and then it becomes more and more difficult for you to fall back into sleep. Well, when people, adults, do experience a baby who isn't sleeping well, believe me, this is one of the most stressful, stressful situations on the entire family. You know, in many situations, it may be like for my wife and I. My wife was nursing the baby, so I sort of felt, well, this is your job. You need to take care of this because I can't do it because I'm not nursing. And my wife, she would do her best, and initially the baby had a harder time with nursing. And it got to the point where I couldn't sleep, my wife couldn't sleep, and as soon as we just started to fall asleep again, the baby would cry and wanted to feed again. And this is something that becomes very, very trying on the relationship of both the husband and the wife. You know, it may be that the wife says, well, you know what, why don't you try doing this? And the husband says, well, I would, but I'm not nursing, and it's important that the baby is nursing because it's healthier. And the wife says, well, let me go ahead and I'll pump, and you could feed the baby breast milk. And the dad says, well, i got to go to work tomorrow, and I don't have time to prepare for all of this. And she then says, well, I have to take care of the baby, and i got to go to work too. And it really could be something that breaks up the relationship between a family. And I think this is something that many, many couples 
often experience some extreme anxiety and separation between themselves because of this problem of sleep. One of the big issues about this sleep, though, is that it's not very common that people will ask you about how well is your child sleeping. You might go to the pediatrician's office and they do testing and such. They might weigh your baby. They might measure how long your baby is. But they may not ask mom and dad whether or not they are getting rest. And we know one of the things that happens when we all sleep, children and adults, is that there are different levels of sleep. One of the things that we know that is very, very important is called REM sleep, R-E-M. And the R-E-M is an abbreviation that stands for rapid eye movement sleep. So one of the things that's very, very important are these different levels of sleep. And REM sleep, it stands for rapid eye movement sleep. And this is a level of sleep that is very important to actually allow us to rest and to replenish some of the function of the brain. We know that from many psychological studies, when people are starting to undergo REM sleep, we could look at their eyes and their eyes will shake very quickly from side to side as a person is sleeping. Maybe some of you have even experienced this as you started to take a nap and the next thing you're noticing, you could almost feel as though your eyes are shaking from side to side. Many times you could look at your friends or family that are sleeping in the same room and as their eyes are closed, you could even see the movement of their eyes. Well, in a lot of the different types of research studies, what they found is, is that if you do not allow a child or an adult to go into the REM sleep, they really do not rest well. For example, in the military, they would often deprive a lot of the prisoners of the REM sleep. And this is one way that they could often encourage and get some of the prisoners to release the information that they were asking for. But we know the same thing happens as well with adults and children. If the child is waking up every 30 to 45 minutes, mom and dad, they don't go into that REM sleep, and as a result, they really never feel replenished. They never really feel as though they had a good night's sleep, and the next day they don't think quite as well, you don't function as well, your muscles of your body feel much weaker, and so on and so forth. So it's very, very important, this whole issue of sleep. And so tonight as we talk about this, Sue and I, we're going to talk about some different strategies. We're going to talk about some of the medical considerations and things that you should investigate if you do have a child or if you yourself have a sleep particular type of problem. Now, the first thing is that we're going to talk about what are some of the causes of sleep disorders among children who have vision impairment. The first thing is that it is fairly common that children with vision problems will have abnormal sleep patterns. One of the thoughts is that because if a child is totally blind or has very, very low vision, they do not know the difference between daylight and when it's nighttime. And when a child cannot perceive the difference between daytime and nighttime, it often affects their biorhythms. 
our biorhythms is sort of like the internal clock of the human body. And we then develop a rhythm, and we know that when it's nighttime or when it's dark, that's the time to fall asleep. And when it's bright, that's the time that we're awake and we do a lot of different things. Many of you might relate to this as if you ever traveled to another country. Let's say you traveled from the United States and then you went to China or Japan. Well, many times your entire sleep cycle will be altered because the daytime is actually nighttime in Asia and vice versa. I know the first time that I went to Asia, it was very difficult to travel from the United States to Asia. So I recall the first time that I went to Asia, I really had a very, very difficult time. I left here in California. I left in the morning, and it was daylight. And as we were flying, it seemed as though it continued to be daytime forever and ever and ever. And by the time that we finally landed in Japan, it was about 5 o'clock in the afternoon in Japan time. But at no time during that whole 14-hour flight was there ever any type of night. And so it was very, very difficult. I was trying so hard to sleep in the plane, but I just couldn't do it. And as I stayed in Japan for the week, my cycle was so off. It was where my body was trying to sleep at certain times, but the amount of sunlight would affect how my body could sleep, and I really couldn't get that good type of rest. I really felt it because it was something where I didn't feel as though I was thinking well, I didn't have the energy that I wanted to have, and I really was quite moody. So this is something that all of us will experience if we're not sleeping well because of our child. But again, your child may have this type of difficulty with sleeping because of the vision impairment itself. So one of the things that we often may recommend is that if your child does have a vision impairment, we do recommend that during the daytime, we try to keep the home well lit. We try to keep the home well lit during the daytime or during the day. We might take the child outside for different periods of time directly into the sunlight because this is going to be a way that a child who has low vision will then be able to understand the difference between day and night. Now, if your child is totally blind, that is something that can be a bit more different but if you do take your child who is totally blind outside during the daylight, they can actually feel, they could feel the heat and the intensity of the sunlight, and this could also help them to understand what is day versus night. One of the problems that many families will do is that they often keep their home very, very dark throughout the day. And when you do that with a child who is visually impaired, they often don't know what is day versus what is night. So remember, if your child does have vision impairment, try to keep your home bright during the daytime and keep it dark during the hours of sleep. Another possible cause of vision impairment and sleep disorders are the imbalance between the hormonal system of the child. Now, we all understand that our body has hormones, and these hormones are things that keep us alive, and they also can affect many of our different types of autonomic functions. So, for example, 
One of the things is that we know that in the body there is something called a pineal gland. And the pineal gland is very, very important because this is a gland that produces a substance that's called melatonin. And melatonin is a very, very important substance that helps one to sleep. Now, we see that there could be many children who may also have a vision problem, but they may also have problems within the endocrine or the hormonal system. For example, one of the fastest growing causes of vision impairment that we see in the United States today is a syndrome called optic nerve hypoplasia. And this is when the optic nerve that sends information from the eyes to the brain it is not fully developed. Well, in children with optic nerve hypoplasia, we know that this optic nerve is not fully developed and it passes right near the areas of the pituitary gland, the pineal body, the thalamus, the thyroid. And we find that many children with optic nerve hypoplasia have reduced amounts of function of different hormones some of these children may have insufficient amounts of growth hormone, so these children are very, very small, and they need to take a growth hormone to help them to grow to a normal size. We see that there's other children with optic nerve hypoplasia that they do not have a hormone that allows them to feel satisfied with thirst. So for some of these types of kids, they always feel thirsty, and they're always drinking water, and because they're always drinking water, they're always going pee, and as they drink more and more water and they pee and pee more, many people often think that these children have diabetes, but this is really a problem where they have an imbalance within that regulation system, and they can't quench the thirst. Well, the same thing may also affect that these children may also have some hormonal imbalances that might affect their sleep if for whatever reason that they are not producing the melatonin, that could be a way that these children are not getting their normal sleep. So in some of these cases, your pediatric ophthalmologist may refer you to a endocrinologist. And it's very important to understand the significance of these specialists because each specialist has their expertise in those areas. So for every child who has optic nerve hypoplasia or any other kind of optic nerve disease, I tend to refer them to be seen by an endocrinologist, and they will then perform studies to see if there's hormones that are missing or if they are out of balance. Now, in some cases for children who have sleep disorders, we may find that these children do not have enough melatonin. And melatonin is something that is found in foods, but it's also available in different types of vitamin supplements. Now, we do not. We do not recommend that you simply go and buy some vitamin supplements and give them to your child, but it's very important that the right dosage is given to the child. So the endocrinologist can tell you whether or not this is something that can be very, very helpful. Another very important bit of information, so you could also understand how these hormones affect sleep, is that in general, the melatonin is usually produced 
within the child's pineal gland, and this is something that is often stimulated during the evening hours. So generally speaking, when it is the evening hours, the body seems to understand that it's dark, and it will then start to make some of this type of melatonin. Some studies state that this melatonin is made when the child is asleep. So you could see that if a child is not sleeping well, or if a child does not understand when it's day versus night, those children may not produce the appropriate amount of melatonin, and this can affect their sleep. So it could become a very vicious type of cycle if the child is not sleeping enough. But I want to emphasize again that I do not recommend that you simply go and you buy melatonin at a pharmacy or a health food store because there's different versions of melatonin. In some cases, you might purchase melatonin that's in the wrong format, and this particular type of melatonin can be dangerous. If you get the wrong type of melatonin, it is something that can potentially spread disease. For example, there are some companies that will simply take cows, and from the cows that have been sacrificed, they take that pineal body and they grind it up and they try to extract melatonin from it. Well, that's not the most healthy ways to administer the melatonin, and it's more important and it's more helpful to ask your endocrinologist to make that specific type. Now, a third cause of sleep disorders in children is that many, many children may actually have small seizures that we may not be aware of. We find that there's many, many children that we see at our clinics that actually have abnormal brain activity, and this is called a seizure. Now, we might have all seen ER and other TV shows where a person suddenly falls down and starts shaking vigorously and we know that that is called a seizure. But there's other times that people may have seizures and you may not even notice it. I have seen many, many children, for it may be that for two seconds, they somewhat stare out into space, and they're actually having a very small seizure at that time. Other times, a child might just slightly jerk as though that they were scared or startled, and that could be a very small seizure. Other times, children may have a small seizure just as they're beginning to go to sleep or they're starting to wake up. Now, when children have these types of seizure disorders, it is usually a result of abnormal brain activity. You see, within the brain, there's all of these electrical signals that are constantly being sent throughout the brain, and in some cases, there might be a spike a little boost where there's too much electrical current that's affecting a certain region of the brain, and that is something that can cause a seizure. Now, these seizures are often going to be diagnosed by a neurologist where they perform what is called an electroencephalogram, EEG is the abbreviation. And with this electroencephalogram, they put these very, very small little electrodes on the child's head and they measure, they can measure these other types of currents that's going on within the brain. And from this very, very quick and easy test, they could identify if there is one part of the brain 
that is too active, or maybe that there's many areas of the brain that are too active. Now, in a case where there's just one small area that is too active, too much electrical information coming from one part of the brain, they might call that a focal seizure. And the focal seizure basically means that that one specific area of the brain has too much electrical activity. When they do the EEG, if there are many areas that have too much activity, that is often called a global type of a seizure. And depending on the type of seizures, whether it's focal or global, the doctors may often prescribe different medications to reduce that amount of electrical activity. Now, I have seen some children who just would not sleep at all. Their seizures were such that they were having hundreds of seizures every day, and each time the child is trying to fall asleep, there might be this electrical shock in the brain, and the child cannot go to sleep. As a result, the child does not go into the REM sleep, so the child never really feels replenished or refreshed, and then it becomes a very vicious cycle. Now, there's been different types of treatments to help some of these kids who have very severe seizure disorders. I have seen some kids that have been placed on medications, and with the medications, the child's sleep problems have gone away, and the child sleeps very well. In other cases, I've had children who have actually gone on a special diet, and this is called the ketogenic diet, K-E-T-O. Genic, G-E-N-I-C, diet, where the child is asked to eat a lot more fat. I mean, these kids are asked to eat whipped cream and butter and all these very, very appealing types of fats. And the fat tends to reduce and many times control the seizures. When the seizures under control, a lot of these kids will then sleep much, much better. And as they're sleeping better, their development improves significantly. A third particular type of treatment that often helps the kids who have sleep problems that are related to these seizures is something that's called the vagal nerve stimulator. And basically, we do know that there is a nerve within the body that's called the vagus nerve. And what they'll do is they insert a electrical probe so that that vagus nerve receives an electrical stimulus, and this is something that could often reduce these types of seizures. So that is something that has really been very, very significant and life-changing for some of our patients who've had very, very severe seizure disorders. So if your child has a diagnosis of neurological vision impairment or cortical vision impairment, or if your child had a brain hemorrhage or a brain bleed, then I think it would be helpful to make certain that your child doesn't have any of these types of small seizures or infantile spasms. These are things that can also really affect the child's sleep pattern. Now, another possible cause of sleep disturbances in children are going to be that some children are just overly sensitive. I mean, there are some children that as you approach a child and you just go to pick up your baby and the baby startles. Or there's other children 
that you go and you place your fingers to rub your fingers through your daughter's hair, and they just can't stand it. Or if you go and you place a T-shirt over their face, and they can't stand the feeling of the T-shirt going over their head. These are often children who have different types of sensory problems. And when children have sensory problems, it is almost as though their body feels too much, their ears may hear too much, their nose may smell too much, and when there's changes, when there's changes to the environment around them, it could be very, very distracting to these kids. So some of these kids may live in a home. Maybe they live in a home where there is eight other kids in a two-bedroom apartment. It is so noisy. There's so much stimulus that's affecting that child's ability to sleep that these kids cannot sleep at all. As they lose sleep and they don't sleep as well, they become more irritable and more agitated. We see that there's other kids who are just sort of hyperactive. You know, some of these kids are just constantly moving, and they're always wanting to do certain things. That daughter of ours that I was telling you about, as long as I could remember, she just really would not sleep very much. She never became fussy. She never became angry, or she didn't have behavior problems. But it was sort of like, please, Jamie, would you just go to sleep? (laughs) She just would not sleep. And it was to the point where I would usually awaken about 5 in the morning to get ready to go to work. And as I'm in the shower, and I come out of the shower, and then she'll come and she'll bring me a book, or she'll bring me a toy. And she'll say, oh, look, Dad, look what I have. And I said, well, you know, you got to be quiet because Mom is still sleeping. Everybody's sleeping, but I'm going to make some breakfast, and you eat these noodles and play with your books and toys. Don't wake up everybody. And she would do that very, very well. And then she would go to preschool, and she'd come home, and then she'd go to dance class. And then I'd get home about 6 or 7 at night, and we'd have dinner together. And she said, okay, Dad, I'm ready to play. I haven't played at all, all day. And we would play till about 11 at night. And she just would not sleep. Now, I kind of thought, this girl's got hyperactivity or something, but I didn't see anything being a behavioral problem. In other words, she didn't have tantrums or she didn't have these very, very poor types of episodes of being mean to people or screaming. But she just had so much energy that she keeps going and going and going. And and she's that way today and she's 21. But some of these types of children who are very, very active like that, they may have difficulties uh, with sleeping. And these are the kids who, in fact, they may have a form of attention deficit disorder, or it might be attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And for many of these kids, it could be that they're very curious and want to learn. But in other cases, it may be that they have a chemical imbalance. Now, within the brain, we have different neurotransmitters. And these neurotransmitters are which allow the brain to send signals from one part to another. In some cases, some children may have too much of one type of neurotransmitter, and as a result, they're sort of hyper. They cannot stop. In other cases, 
we may see that another cause of hyperactivity or these types of behavior problems may actually be allergies. I never thought that this could be the case, but I started to learn from my practice that there are many children who have allergies. And when they have these allergies, it could affect them in a couple of different ways. Number one, there are children who are allergic to wheat and gluten. And when they have that type of allergy, sometimes when they eat a cracker or a goldfish cracker or cereal or a piece of bread, something that you think is healthy for them, it could activate their allergy system, and these kids become very irritable. They become sort of hyperactive in that way, and it affects their ability to sleep. There's other kids who may have other types of food allergies, and when they eat those particular types of foods, it affects the way that they breathe. Now, we also have a son, and our son, he was born three years after our daughter, And for whatever reason, he just loved to eat all of these types of crackers and cheese and crackers and peanut butter. And, you know, they come with a red stick and you put the peanut butter on the cracker. And he just really loved that. Well, one of the things that we noticed is that we always thought that he was sort of a sickly child. He was diagnosed as having asthma. And as he got a bit older and was going into kindergarten and first grade, this kid was always sick. He would wake up in the morning, his eyes were sort of, you know, all puffy, and it looked like he had black rings underneath his eyes, and he would cough, and his cough sounded as though he had the worst cold ever, and we would keep him home, and it got to the point where then I said, you know what, we're going to get him tested for allergies, and we found out that it was, he's allergic to peanuts, and it was so severe that his peanut allergies were something that his doctor was really surprised that he was never taken into the emergency room because of that. While in his case, the doctors then gave him these allergy shots, and it's a low amount of allergen, which is a peanut. And within time, his allergies got much, much better. But what we noticed from that is that as he started to get these allergy shots, When he woke up in the morning, he didn't have that cough. He didn't sound like he had a cold. He didn't have black rings around his eyes. He could sleep much better where he wasn't snoring. And we realized that he wasn't getting good sleep before because of the allergies. He couldn't get the good oxygen in. And I remember, I think it was his first grade year, he missed missed four months of school. He had four months of school in total absences because he was always sick with a cold. And then the next year after he was treated with the allergies, he he got a perfect attendance award. So that was really a major thing, and it made me realize that allergies is also something that can affect the sleep. So we know that for children who are visually impaired, there's many, many possible reasons that they may have sleep problems, especially if your child has optic nerve hypoplasia, if your child has neurological vision impairment. And also, I like to say just that children who are born premature very often seem to have more difficulties with their sleep pattern. Now, what are some of the things that you can do about this? The first thing I would, again, recommend if your child is having problems with sleep, you want to ask your pediatrician for a referral for a sleep study. 
there they can actually monitor how well your child is sleeping, and they will probably do these types of tests. You hope that they're going to be checking for the hormones and the endocrine system. They might refer you to endocrinologists to study the hormones. They may also refer you to an allergist, and they may do a panel. Now, this panel is something that doesn't hurt, but they have this grid, and they push that onto your child's back, or it might be your child's arm, and each one of these little spots is going to touch your child's back or arm. And if any one of those areas becomes red or inflamed, then they know that maybe your child is allergic to cat fur or dog fur or it could be dust or peanuts. And they do all of these different things to find out what your child is allergic to. Now, after you've had that type of testing, they will then recommend various sorts of treatments. If your child does have a hormonal abnormality, the doctor may often recommend hormones And it may be something like melatonin or it may be something different. One of the things that a lot of the eye doctors and researchers are studying now is the effects of light. Now, we know that light plays a very, very important role in developing our understanding of day and night. So we do recommend that children are taken outdoors into the direct sunlight during the day. Many times parents feel it's too dangerous to take the child out into the sunlight. Maybe the sunlight is too bright. Maybe the sunlight's going to cause skin cancer. Or maybe the sunlight's going to damage the retina. The reality of that is no, that is not true. If you take your child out into the sun five to ten minutes a day, that's going to help the child to then receive that type of stimulation. The sunlight helps to produce vitamin D. And vitamin D is a very, very important vitamin for the body. We also know that there's a lot of research that's going on right now. And the thought is is that when a child is exposed to the sunlight and the sunlight has blue-colored light, that is very important for the production of the different hormones that are involved in sleep. So as a result, many people, this includes adults who have low vision, and have sleep problems, part of their treatment is that they are prescribed to go outside for a specific amount of time each day and not to wear sunglasses during that time. This is a way that the hormonal system can receive the light energy that is important in producing those hormones that would help with sleep. So you do want to take your baby outside for short periods of time. Maybe five minutes, you could go for a walk in the morning sun. In the afternoon, you could go for another walk, or you could just play outside for a short time. And again, it doesn't mean that your child has to be exposed to the sun of the Mojave Desert. You could put your baby inside of a stroller, and there could be a canopy over the top, or you could put a hat on, that's fine. But it's just that there will be that overall brightness to help your your child. Another thing that you also want to do is that you want to allow your child to be as active as possible during the daytime. During the daylight, if you are outside, that is when you may turn on the music. You might have wind chimes. You might have balloons that your child could touch, the mylar uh, types of balloons that crinkle when you touch them. 
but all of these activities should be performed in the daytime so that the child is beginning to learn that the daytime is the activity time and nighttime is for sleeping. I know that one of the things that many parents will do is maybe dad comes home from work and he's happy to see the baby, and maybe he brings out his iPad and starts to play with the baby. Well, playing on that little iPad may tend to excite the baby too much, and the child may not sleep well. I'm certain that many of you have noticed that, that sometimes if you go on the Internet at 10 o'clock before you're ready to go to bed, you might see that there's going to be a sale or something's coming up and you get so excited that you can't sleep well. So it's good not to do things that are going to arouse the child too much later at night. Do these kinds of activities throughout the day. There's also other recommendations where the doctors may also recommend different levels of food, different types of food. We know that one cause of babies waking up is the fact that they're often hungry. And there may be a certain time that the baby is ready to have a different type of food. Maybe the baby needs to now have formula or start to have some cereal. I know that for my son, this guy would eat like every hour. I just couldn't believe it. And as he got older, we then said, you know, we better put him on some food. And as he started eating cereal, it kept him full much longer, and he started sleeping four to six hours a day. So we want to look at what's the types of foods that your child is eating and to see how that can also uh, have an effect. Temperature and sounds are also very important. Many times if your child is going to be in a particular room as he or she is going to sleep, we want to make certain that the temperature is going to be at a good temperature for the child to sleep. Sometimes the child may not be wrapped well and the child can't sleep very well. I know that they do have these blankets and these blankets are really cool where you could put the feet in there and then you could wrap the baby up pretty tight like a, a papoose and the child feels more secure that way when the arms and the legs are very close to the body. But if a child is just left to lie and spread eagle, many times these children, they don't feel the same way that they did when they're in the womb, and it makes it harder for them to sleep. A warmer temperature is usually going to be better than something that's too cold, but again, we don't want something that's going to be too hot where they can't sleep. And when you're putting your baby to sleep too, you want to try to keep the room dark. You don't want the room to be having all these lights on and all these other visually stimulating patterns in the walls of the room because the child can't sleep. I know one of the things that I did when, when my daughter was born, I decorated a crib. I've got all these high-contrast black-and-white patterns, and I put it at the distance right around the crib so that she could look at that and play with it. But then what I noticed when we tried to get her to go to sleep in there, all she did was look. She looked at every pattern. She was like, this is almost like Disneyland. And I realized, boy, that was a mistake. So I then went ahead and I covered those patterns and pictures that I had with blankets. And the next thing I knew, when I turned off the lights, then she would fall asleep. So you don't want that um, crib to be uh, Disneyland. But at this time, I like to turn it over to Sue. And Sue's going <laughs> to talk about some different um uh, routines and things that could also be helpful. Sue? 
Yeah, well, thank you, Dr. Bill. Um, I just want to stick for a few minutes. I know I won't be able to open this up for questions, but I'm sure we'll have many. But um, I, I recently came across this, this article. I wanted to share it with you. It's actually in March 2012 during a journal of pediatrics. And the, the title of the article was Never Enough Sleep. It was a brief history of sleep recommendations for children. And you know how we always read about, um, you know, how many hours a preschooler needs and how many hours an infant needs and such, and it's pretty daunting. Uh, we're kind of all feel guilty about that. But what the article really went to describe was this whole idea. They did this literature search of articles of sleep recommendations from 1897 to 2009, and there were 32 sets of recommendations. And what they found was it was, was consistently all the way through that children were receiving 37 minutes of less sleep than their recommended, recommended amount was. So basically, from since 1897 till now, children are not getting enough sleep. <laughs> so I, I'm hoping that will make everybody feel a little less um, responsible and guilty because I think sometimes we feel like part of, part of our frustration in helping children sleep is that we're not able to do it. And the reality is modern times is making it much more difficult for us to um, find that kind of quiet time at night to be able to create that routine. But as Dr. Bill said, um, clearly it, for children with visual impairments and what my experience is and what I've heard, learned from other parents and heard from other parents is that it's very different than their, their sibling was, other as a child was. So I think um, we just have to acknowledge the fact that it's important to uh, recognize the medical conditions and go, you know, make sure that we're getting that kind of uh, screening done that will ha- allow us to be able to rule out the medical issue versus it being maybe an issue of routine. But um, one of the things I think it's really important for us to look at in terms of establishing bedtime routines is to just kind of create a quiet time right before bed. I think sometimes, like you said, if the Internet's on and the TV's on and the iPad's on, it can create an environment that can truly um, make it difficult for that child to ease into a routine. Um, one thing that's really important is helping the child and the infant recognize that their crib or bed or sleeping place is the place where they sleep. That is not really a playtime. It's not in a place where they're going to actually be playing or um, engaging in other things. It's actually the sleep time. So if parents can kind of help the child to look at that as being a, uh, a way to um, encourage them to um, sleep, that would be great. Um, oftentimes children who wake up in the middle of the night, that was an, that's another area where I think a lot of our parents talk about with me is that, you know, their child will go to sleep, but then they wake up six hours later or five hours later. And that's a, a really challenging situation because sometimes you're concerned that the baby or child or the infant is, or when your preschooler maybe start to walk around the house and maybe get into things and you don't want, you obviously need to address the issue. But you also want to be sure that you're not um, reinforcing the issue by getting up and playing with a child. So maybe one one strategy for that would be if your child does get up and looks for you, you know, in, immediately when that first incident happens, make sure that they go back to their bed, take them back to their bed, give them the glass drink of water, and then let you know in a calm, quiet voice. It's not their fault; they just woke up. You know, if this is bedtime, everybody's sleeping, it's time for you to be back in your bed and and to be as consistent as possible. Now, that may be challenging, but perhaps after weeks of doing the same thing, you can notice the same thing happening. The child will get the, it will eventually 
become part of that child's routine. And again, if this is happening frequently, keeping a sleep diary can be very helpful too. You know, what are the things that are happening during the day? Like Dr. Bill said, is there certain foods that seem to be a trigger? Is the child maybe eating a bit too much sugar towards the end of the day? Maybe every caregiver in the, in the house is approaching things a little bit differently. Maybe grandma's allowing the child to do certain things and, you know, dad's doing certain things. But if everybody is on the same page and being able to kind of address those the type of routine that a child might need, then that might also help the child stay awake, um, stay asleep at night and not wake up during the middle of the night. Um, so keeping a sleep diary um, of things like um, what time they wake up in the morning, what time they go to bed, the time and length of their naps, um, what time did they actually settle into bed, how long did it take, 15 minutes, 30 minutes before they went to sleep, um, what time did they wake up at night, I mean, those type of things. Giving, getting information about that and writing that down in a diary and sharing that with your pediatrician who can then take that information and say, you know, I think we really do need to do a sleep study or we really do need to do uh, more information, get more information from your pediatric ophthalmologist or endocrinologist. Because I think, again, it's that team approach that's going to make this all work. Now, I don't want to go on too much in detail because I know that you might have questions for Dr. Bill, and I just want to make sure we can unmute our phones and be able to have that opportunity. But if you have questions, um, you can always call our office, and my number is is 323-906-3138, and we can certainly share some websites with you and some other information that we have. So, Dr. Bill, I'm going to turn it back over to you so you have a chance to answer some questions. Okay, great, great. And that that's a great um, point that you brought up there. Um, a little story about myself is that I realized, too, it was kind of interesting, after I became totally blind, there would be certain nights that I would wake up, and it was about 1 o'clock in the morning, and I woke up, and I was just ready to go. And I started to sort of keep this sleep diary to see what was mm-hmm. going on. And you know what it was? It was teriyaki chicken. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Every time my wife would make teriyaki chicken, I found myself waking up like at 1 o'clock. And my wife, if you ever want a good teriyaki recipe, she makes the best teriyaki (laughs) chicken. But it does include a lot of soy sauce and sugar in the sauce. And, you know, the Mm -hmm. chicken is marinated and things. But one of the things is that... As I became blind, I think I became more dependent on my sense of smell. And as I would sleep at night, I could smell this teriyaki chicken. You know, it smelled so delicious. And I would wake up at 1 o'clock in the morning, and I was just starving. And I later found that there were other things, too. If I were to have a dessert that had sugar, if we went out with friends and maybe we went to the Cheesecake Factory or something, and I, I had uh, a couple bites of cheesecake or something, I would find that the sugar in there would actually make me so active that I couldn't sleep. And also for me, I also found that if I had caffeine after 12 o'clock noon, then I would not sleep at night. So for children, the caffeine, the sugar, they all could play a role in, in how a child sleeps. So let's go ahead. We've got a few minutes for questions. I want you to press star and six, and then Sue and I, we could answer any questions you have, okay? We all have different experiences, 
with our children. Every child is different. Every child has a different condition. Every child lives in a different home. And if you have any questions, we might be able to give you some suggestions as to what to do next to help your kids to to sleep better. If not, we're just going to go ahead and uh, remind all of you that this recording is going to be on the Braille Institute webpage at www.brailleinstitute.org. That's www.brailleinstitute.org. And each month, on the second Tuesday of the month, we have a different topic. Many times we bring in guests to come to provide their expertise, and we talk about many issues that are related to children's vision. This is also going to be on AirsLA. Org, and that's www.airsla.org. And there you will find the largest selection of audio recorded podcasts and programs. Many of them are lectures from some of the most renowned researchers in the world. There's articles and magazines that are read by professional voiceover artists. And there's all sorts of different things there that you could listen to. Uh, so on Airs LA, you click the vision link, and then you'll see the table, and you could click uh, Braille Institute, and you'll find many of these different types of podcasts. So this evening, we'd like to thank uh, Mr. Dick Burden, the audio engineer, for recording this. And we hope that all of you tune in uh, next month when we are going to talk about what are we talking about next month, Sue? It'll be actually optic nerve hypoplasia. We'll be discussing optic nerve hypoplasia and, um, and some of its conditions. And, uh, and again, your questions and your comments or, or thoughts are more than welcome, so please uh, bring, them to the, bring them to the call. Yes, and if I may suggest, too, if I know many people don't like to be on things that are recorded, um, but if you do have questions, please feel free to email me questions, and we could bring them up on our program so that you don't have to ask the questions. And you could email it to me at Dr. Bill Foundation. That's D-R-B-I-L-L Foundation at gmail.com. And then I could read these questions uh, on the air. So, again, we thank all of you for your attention, and we hope this was very helpful, and we will see you all next month.